Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome once again. We are back with episode 45 of Discovering the Old Testament, in which we will turn our attention to the return of the Jews from exile in Babylon and the construction of a new temple. It was the culmination of an impossible dream brought about by an unlikely set of circumstances and set Judaism on a path that included further triumph, tragedy, and the birth of Christianity from the Jewish religious matrix. When we began this series, I described the Old Testament as a record of the failure of the Israelites to live up to their covenantal expectations, which led to their destruction as a nation and exile into Babylon. Since then, however, we've seen that there is more to it than that, but the basic premise remains. The Old Testament was compiled to understand that failure, but perhaps even more importantly to understand how to keep it from happening again when, against all realistic expectations, they got a second chance to get it right. It is true that there were prophecies to the effect that Israel would be restored, that they would return to their covenant lands, but it didn't work out quite the way they expected. It was a pagan, non-Israelite king, Cyrus the Great, who was the deliverer of the Jews rather than some scion of David that made it all possible and allowed the Jews not only to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple, but return to the sacred vessels that had been looted by the Babylonians when the city fell. These major ambiguities forced the Jewish people to develop new ideas about the place of God both with respect to themselves and to other nations. It further encouraged the universal vision of Yahweh as a God of all nations, something that the later prophets, like 2nd and 3rd Isaiah, had preached. It further opened the Jewish community to the idea that there were other nations with ideas worth exploring, something that had already started as part of the exile. The truth is that life in Babylon wasn't all that bad for many Jewish families. We have cuneiform records of transactions and business dealings that record the names of several families who are clearly Jewish. By the time the exile ended, most of the Jews had never been to Jerusalem. They didn't even speak Hebrew, but spoke Aramaic, the language of Babylon. Many of them remained behind instead of returning to Judea, and Babylon continued to be a major Jewish learning and culture center for centuries afterwards. Quite a few other Jews left Babylon, but instead struck out for other cities and towns that were part of the Persian Empire, creating outposts and communities of Jews all over the Near East. For example, we have records of a colony of Jewish mercenaries who settled in Egypt at Elephantine. A cache of papyri found there reveals an active community still very Jewish in spite of not being in the Promised Land. These Jewish communities outside of Judea apparently did not share the religious fervor of their brethren in Jerusalem. Years later, in 166 BCE, when the Seleucids provoked the first true religious war in the form of the Maccabean Revolt, Jews in other Seleucid cities remained loyal citizens. 
Quite a few served in Seleucid armies on that empire's far-flung frontiers. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, work began on the new temple as decreed by Cyrus. Several versions of this decree have come down to us. The Aramaic version in Ezra chapter 6 includes mention of sacrifices and a grant from the Persian treasury to help pay the construction costs. The Persians even appear to have granted the Jews the right to mint their own currency, based on coinage found there from this period. Persian policy was enlightened, but it was also pragmatic. The empire was far too large to micromanage, so it made sense to encourage people to govern their own affairs, so long as they met certain minimum standards of loyalty. In order to rule this vast imperial domain, the empire was divided into states called satraps. Each one was ruled by a group of men to prevent the satrap from breaking away. Satrap was also the title of the chief governor, but besides him there was also a financial secretary, a military leader, and a court official known as the Eyes of the King. With power divided in this way, it was theoretically difficult for any one official to try to carve out a private little kingdom for himself at the expense of the emperor or shah. The first group to arrive in Jerusalem around 538 BCE they managed to do little more than just lay the foundations of the new temple before the project stalled. It wasn't until twenty years later that a second group of returnees, under a leader named Zerubbabel, who is credited somewhat confusingly with finishing the foundations, but more trouble lay ahead for those rebuilding the temple. When the exiles were led away from the city, there were a number of Jews who remained behind, eking out a living among the ruins. Gradually, these people moved to Samaria, which later became a satrap separate from Judea. When the exiles returned, those left behind offered to help with the rebuilding effort, but they were scornfully rebuffed. It seems that having lived among pagans raised the suspicion among the returning Jews that their version of Judaism was tainted somehow, and therefore they ought not to be allowed to participate in raising a new temple. This led to a long series of tit-for-tat maneuvering and politics that prevented any real progress on the project for some time. Further, whispers in the ear of the satrap of Samaria hinted that these Jerusalem returnees were not entirely loyal and were plotting to rebuild Jerusalem as a fortress from which to defy Persian rule. Those whispers naturally found their way to the royal court after Cyrus had passed away. Zerubbabel and a priest named Joshua responded by leading a delegation to the imperial court to protest the obstructionism. They asked for the original decree of Cyrus to be located in the archives, and after much searching, the decree was found and their position vindicated. With a fresh confirming order in hand, plus a promise of yet more funds to speed construction along, work resumed on the temple. However, the antagonisms between the returned exiles and the Jews of Samaria, or Samaritans, as the New Testament calls them, did not go away, but continued to fester. This was the origin of that long and bitter mutual hatred. The new temple was finished in 522 BCE and is known as the Second Temple. Although there 
were really two versions of it. As the first was constructed, the new temple kept close to the original design of Solomon's temple. The temple was effectively closed down at the onset of the Maccabean Revolt, but was rededicated after the recapture of Jerusalem by Jewish forces. This was the setting of the holiday of Hanukkah, when the Romans took over Judea as a way of settling an ongoing civil war, their provincial king Herod the Great decided in 19 BCE that the temple could stand to be renovated. Renovation hardly begins to describe it. The complex was vastly expanded and beautified. In order to carry out the construction in places where laity were forbidden to go, Josephus records that 1,000 Levites were specially trained as masons and builders. Services continued during construction. The one part of the temple that remains today, the famous Wailing Wall, was part of Herod's expansion of the temple. <music> The temple was the center of more than architectural changes. The tumultuous fortunes in Judea created problems with the temple administration. After the Maccabean Revolt, the Hasmonean family that led the way to military victory wrested the office of high priest away from the priestly Zadokite family, which had served in that capacity since the days of Solomon. It was not only the popularity of the war heroes of Hasmon that made this possible. The Zadokites had become corrupt themselves and no longer had the moral authority to persuade the people to reject a Hasmonean high priest. Traditionalists were horrified at this breach of protocol. In their eyes, it compromised the sanctity of the temple. One of those opposing factions was a group of Essenes who went out into the Judean desert to try to live a holy life in full compliance with the purity regulations as they interpreted them. This community, living in isolation near the modern-day Kerbet Qumran, was responsible for copying, assembling, and preserving the Dead Sea Scrolls. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, the view that the temple administration had fallen into corruption was held by a large number of Jews. Different factions grew up along these and other social and economic fault lines. The temple continued to be a political football. I suppose it's not really proper to compare the temple to a pigskin, but there it is. And as time went on, it grew into a center for anti-Roman resistance. This resistance led to the Jewish War, which ended with the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE by the Tenth Roman Legion. By this time, Judaism had spent considerable time as a covenant people with and without the edifice that was supposed to be the major outward symbol of that covenant. Ezra the scribe, whom we will learn about more in a future installment, gave Judaism what may have been its key to survival in an age without a temple. His great innovation in canonizing the Torah went beyond merely establishing a body of authoritative scripture. He established the tradition, 
the first of its kind in the history of religion as far as I know, of the study of scripture as the primary act of worship for a religious community. Jewish factionalists such as the Essenes at Qumran also developed modes of worship that assumed that the temple was unavailable because of corruption and desecration. In doing so, they learned how to live without a temple, while incorporating its role as a center of holiness and an organizing principle into other, less brittle aspects of their culture, especially the Torah and the interpretive tradition that grew up around it. There were other innovations. The synagogue developed after the destruction of the first temple to provide a space for meeting, instruction, and worship. As the Jews went out into the rest of the world, they built synagogues in the new center of their communities. In the wake of the loss of the second temple, the Jews responded by producing a large professional clergy that grew out of the Pharisees' faction we read about in the New Testament. This new class of clerics, the rabbis, compiled the Talmud, a massive legal collection of scholarship, case law, opinions, and many other items concerning Jewish life. Ironically, this work was compiled and completed in Babylon. Another important factor in the survival of Judaism was that, thanks to the exile, Jewish communities were now all over the ancient world. This was a culture that learned how to adapt and thrive wherever they happened to be, while still retaining their essential Jewish character. There is strong evidence that these communities kept in touch with each other and formed their own commercial network. Incidentally, the early missionary work of the Jesus movement, it wasn't really Christianity in a sense at that point, used this network of Jewish communities to spread their message faster than they could have done without it. Otherwise, the new sect may well have lived a much shorter life as just another faction in Jerusalem's endless religious conflicts. Meanwhile, the phrase Babylonian exile or Babylonian captivity entered common usage as a term for any period of protracted spiritual or other forms of oppression. For example, Martin Luther referred to the Babylonian captivity of the church to describe the overweening spiritual subjugation of the church by a corrupt pontiff in Rome. But I should point out that both periods of exile for Judaism unleashed tremendous creative energy. The Torah and many of the other scriptures of the Old Testament received their final editorial form during the Babylonian captivity. They grappled with many new ideas from surrounding Babylonian, Zoroastrian, and later Greek traditions, some of which found their way into Judaism during the intertestamental period. The main point here is that what we consider to be the biblical worldview found much of its development not in the time of David or Solomon or the time of the judges. It formed mainly during the exile in Babylon. The Babylonian exile conferred a blessing on the Jewish people that might not be obvious to all. The end of the Jewish kingdom also ended the Jewish monarchy. The Davidic dynasty was wiped out, and, since tradition and scripture held that only a descendant of David could sit on the throne, no new king appeared. Although the high priests who ruled Judea acquired many of the trappings and powers of kingship, it never really emerged into a fully formed kingship. 
The end of the Second Temple destroyed even the idea, for most, of a Jewish secular nation. But this was not necessarily a bad thing. Without a ruling and political elite, the support structures to support their personal power and aggrandizement, the exile provided a great opportunity for creativity and innovation. We have already reviewed some examples from both exilic periods, and they are just a fraction of what was accomplished. In other words, the exile flattened the organizational structure. To use a more contemporary expression, the exile in Babylon and the diaspora from Jerusalem removed Judaism's 1% from their positions of power, and in the wake of that change, the community eventually prospered. Jewish traditions about the exile always go hand in hand with the concept of return. The original captivity was Egypt, with a return to Canaan. The exodus from Egypt was the defining metaphor for Jewish hope during the Babylonian exile, and the return to Jerusalem seen as a replication of that original moment of liberation. But with the, the last great scattering, even though the hope of return found expression as part of modern Zionism and the State of Israel, the attitude towards return is more nuanced and varied among modern Judaism. This conversation turns on the age-old question of whether it is possible for a Jew to live as a Jew in the modern world. Past persecution, persistent anti-Semitism, and infamous events such as the Dreyfus Affair in France convinced many early Zionists that returning to Palestine was necessary as a matter of cultural survival. But many others have not only accepted but embraced the idea of diaspora, in which healthy Jewish communities could thrive and effect positive change in the world around them. In that sense, the great lesson of the exile and the loss of the temple flow out of the demands such events place upon a people. Those who understand learn how to embody the values of what was lost and thrive in the wake of destruction and loss. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Music